Milwaukee United Church of Christ presents The Reflection by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman for the first Sunday of Advent, November 28, 2021. I try to get outside for a walk or a run every day. And over the last few weeks, I've been watching the Christmas lights go up around my neighborhood. And I've been surprised at my own reaction. Because it started earlier than I've ever seen it before. It started the day after Halloween. Now, in the past, I might have disparaged this, wishing that people understood the difference between Advent and Christmas, wishing that people understood that Christmas begins on December 25th and lasts 12 days until we celebrate the Feast of Epiphany. We celebrate the story of the Magi. But this year, I say, light the lights, sing the songs, bring as much brightness as you can find into the shadows of this world as soon as you can find it. I usually associate this early decoration with marketing and the dilution of the significance of the holiday in favor of either cheap sentimentalism at best or manipulative advertising in service of exploitative capitalism at worst. The kind of excess that threatens to overwhelm the profound message of the incarnation with all its tinny, forced, and repetitive cheer. But this year, I am not rushing to judgment. If someone is offering light in this shadowed world, I am for it. And so what if these are merely secular expressions. I was reminded recently that secular is not the opposite of spiritual. It's a mistake we Protestants often make, but the Catholics know this. They, in fact, identify some of their priests as secular priests because it just means of or relating to the world. And they distinguish secular priests working in local parishes, from religious priests who are working in a religious order, like the Dominicans or the friars. It is not unspiritual to be secular. And really, this is the point of Advent, to be in the world. This season designed for attentive waiting is not a season of closing oneself away from the world to focus only inwardly or to try to create some sort of super-spiritual bubble to, to concentrate only on our own interior spiritual growth. It is a time to attend to signs of the holy in the world. Now, typically, when we enter Advent, we are faced with a series of apocalyptic texts. And in this year, year C of the Revised Common Lectionary, we would be reading passages from Isaiah, and what one scholar calls the more troubled passages of Luke. We'd be hearing words about signs and portents in the sun and the moon and the stars, words full of foreboding and shaking and confusion, words that end with power and glory, words that might feel fitting for today, but which were formed in the community of Luke's gospel when they believed that Jesus might be coming back at any moment, 
and that Rome might be forcing its hand down on them at any moment. They were living in the crux, in the tension of those two worries. That kind of reading offers to our imagination not just the world of Luke's first readers, but also our world. When you look around our world, there are always places where individuals' lives are coming to an end. Because of political manipulations, corruption, violence, poverty, someplace around the globe, people's lives are coming to an end. In this era of climate crisis and rising autocracy around the world, these apocalyptic texts might echo loudly for us and force us to hold in tension the other message of the season, the end of things and the beginning of things. I was reading Padrego Tuma's weekly email this week, and he wrote, there was a Polish rabbi in the 19th century, Rabbi Simka Bunim, who urged his followers to write these words on a slip of paper and put them in their left-hand pocket. The world was created for me. And then to take another slip of paper and put it in their right-hand pocket with the, world's, with the words, I am but dust and ashes. To hold these things in tension, the world was created for me, I am but dust and ashes. The rabbi proposed that this tension was a necessary one, and it's this same kind of tension that is exposed at Advent and in a pandemic. Padre Gotuma wondered what would he write on a piece of paper, two pieces of papers to keep his mind in that tension. I am capable of kindness, I am capable of cruelty. There is strength only in community. I must learn to be alone. I carry joy on my left. I carry pain on my right. This kind of tension is not about finding balance, but knowing how to hold ourselves still and hopeful in that tension. If we focus only on praise, we can cover over human failures. If we focus only on the failures of human nature, we can plunder our own hearts of hope. We need both, held tight, one in each pocket, eyes wide open. This is the tension of Advent, the world as it is, kind and cruel, communal and solitary, joy and pain. And wending through all of it, our attentiveness to stubborn, hope. This year, to, keep, to help us keep our eyes and hearts open, I've set aside those traditional readings with their echoes and cries of apocalypticism. Instead, our Advent will be guided by texts selected and translated by a womanist biblical scholar and Episcopal priest named Wilda Gaffney. She's written two volumes of what will eventually be four of something called a women's lectionary for the whole church. In her intro, she reminds us that the biblical texts are androcentric. That is, they center around and make normative the experiences of men. And they are also occasionally misogynistic, woman-hating. But the lectionary, that set of readings that was created for worship and study, which are meant to offer the church the whole scope of the biblical narrative 
for our spiritual nourishment, those texts not only echo the male-centeredness of the Bible, they exaggerate it. For those who are unfamiliar with the Revised Common Lectionary, it's an ecumenical set of readings which we use here in this church. Every week, there are four readings that are provided or offered for us. One from the Hebrew Bible, a psalm, one from the epistles in the New Testament, and a gospel lesson. I typically choose one or two for our communal worship and from which to preach, but there are always four given every week. And there are four for every week of the year, and there are three separate years. So a year A that focuses on, I think A is Mark, and B, I can't remember. Each year has, has a, um, we're in year C and that's Luke. Um, each year has a, one of the synoptic gospels attached to it, and then the gospel of John is sprinkled throughout. And the idea of creating the Revised Common Lectionary was that all over the world, Christians of various denominations would be offered this wide and deep understanding of the whole text. That if you come to church regularly over those three years, you will have received a broad understanding of the narrative of the biblical text. That was the idea. Gaffney is not the first person to notice the deficiencies of what has been offered. She's not the first to notice that there are a lot of things that are necessarily left out. And because they're left out, even if you're a clergy person whose job it is to read and read commentary and to understand the text and to fight with the text, you can get into a habit of only reading the text that is assigned for the coming week and forgetting about all the rest. So like I said, Gaffney's not the first to notice the deficiency, but she may be the first to offer her own corrective, particularly for the androcentrism of the lectionary, the fact that it focuses so much on the, the men in the, in the text. For example, I invite you to pause with me for just a minute and think of the names of all of the women that you know that are named in the Hebrew Bible, the, whole, the Old Testament. If you have a pen and paper, jot them down. I'll wait. Some of you are still writing, but how many did you come up with? Just shout it out. Four. Four? Okay. Six. Six. Good. Ten. Ethlyn, well done. If you could only name a few, please don't feel bad. One of the reasons Dr. Gaffney decided to create the new lectionary is that she is a scholar and a professor of Hebrew Bible, and she teaches graduate students people who are working on their PhDs in Hebrew Bible. And most of her students, many of her students, could not even name 10 women who are named in the Hebrew scripture. Much less in the Hebrews, actually they could only name 10 in the whole Bible. It may surprise you to learn that in the Hebrew scripture there are 111 women who are named. Not to mention all the women who figure in stories without a name being attached to them. 
which is a thing that also happens to women in the text. They disappear because they're not named, and so we forget them. The traditional lectionary does not even introduce us to a tithe of the women. This new lectionary will open us up to a more inclusive and expansive experience of the biblical stories through the eyes of female characters. And this is a women's lectionary for the whole church because being deprived of the stories of women is just as detrimental to boys and men and non-binary folk as it is to girls and women. We all lose when women are forgotten. Gaffney follows the fourfold pattern of the Revised Common Lectionary, four texts for each day, a Hebrew Bible, a Psalm, something from one of the letters, and a gospel lesson. And for these four weeks of Advent in particular, the Hebrew Bible lesson, lessons are all annunciations, announcements, and these give context to the announcement that we, read, that we heard Kathy read earlier to Mary. We heard her read it in Dr. Gaffney's translation, in which she, she strives to um, translate the Hebrew well and truly, and also to allow a more nuanced approach to gender in the text. We heard the Annunciation to Hagar this morning, and in the coming weeks, we'll hear stories of, Sarah, of the Annunciation to Sarah and Abram, to the unnamed mother of Samson, and to Hannah. And all of that will give us some context for the Annunciation to Mary. Like the apocalyptic Advent texts of the traditional lectionary, these Annunciations make the claim that God is involved in human history. And more, that God is deeply involved in the lineage, the ancestors and the descendants of God's people. Mary's Annunciation and the story of Jesus's first advent stand on that foundational understanding. That's why they're in the text for the first hearers who were members of that Jewish community fed by those earlier texts. And now we come to Hagar. You may or may not remember that this is how Hagar came to be in the wilderness. Before Sarai and Abram received their own long, long-awaited annunciation, Sarai despaired of ever having a biological child. This was, we assume, a personal grief to her, but it was more than that, because she was the wife of Abram, to whom God had made promises. God had promised, I will make of you a great nation. And Sarai could not imagine how that could be if she could have no children. So she experienced not only personal grief, but a sense of failure. Her failure was blocking the promise of God. So Sarai, in her desperation, took her enslaved servant, the foreign woman from Egypt named Hagar, and gave her to Abram in the hope that that way she could get a child for herself. Hagar had no say over her body being given to Abram, and she had no say over the child that might come being given to Sarai. She is on what womanist scholars Dolores Williams and Rita Weems call the underside of every power curve that was in operation. So the curve between wealth and poverty between local and foreign, male and female, 
free and enslaved, she was on the bottom of all of the curves. Hagar did become pregnant by Abram, but so far from being pleased, Sarai was overcome with anger. She accused Hagar of looking at her with a satirical eye, and she denounced her to Abram. Abram's only response about the, the woman pregnant with his first child was, your slave girl is in your power. Do to her as you please. Sarai did as she pleased. She dealt harshly, violently with Hagar. But Hagar liberated herself. She ran away. It is this Hagar, pregnant, alone, fugitive, that the messenger of God searched for and found. To this woman, on the bottom of all of the hierarchies, the messenger of God announced that the Most High God had seen her abuse. And the Most High God promised her that her child would be born and live and thrive. An antagonistic but successful man through whom she would become the matriarch of people too many to count. A promise usually reserved for men in the text is given to Hagar. Hagar, this powerless woman, directed by the same messenger to return to Sarai and submit herself, is nevertheless seen by God. And she receives promises from God. And alone in all the scripture, she names God. She says, you are the God of seeing. Meaning, have I seen the one who sees me and lived to tell about it? The long story of Sarai and Abram continues with Hagar's return and the birth of her child, Ishmael. And then the birth of Sarai's long-desired son, Isaac, which makes Sarai turn against Hagar again, wanting to protect the inheritance for her son alone, although Ishmael was the older. And she demands that Abram expel Hagar. Abram, who seems to have no will of his own, gathers some bread and water and sends Hagar and his firstborn son out. He sends them packing. Once again, Hagar escapes into the wilderness. There she comes to the end of her resources and the end of her rope. But God again hears her. God hears her weeping and she is rescued. And this time she is not sent back. She is sent on. She and Ishmael settle in the wilderness and then eventually they make their way to her home in Egypt. There they settle, and Hagar finds a wife for Ishmael, and the promises of God unfold for her. Hagar, our ancestor in story and imagination, speaks to us this Advent, in her distress seen by God, seeing God, listening to God's promise, and holding on to it. This Annunciation is background and echo to the Annunciation to Mary. Most of us are much more familiar with that story, Greetings, Favored One. But especially here in the progressive 
Protestant branch of the Christian tree, it's not an episode we tend to linger on. If we allow in the idea that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had some kind of supernatural experience alerting her to the importance of her pregnancy, we move quickly from that initial encounter, greetings, to her assent, to her essentially saying yes. But between the surprise greeting and the submission of Mary, there is a complicated dance that goes on. The angel greets her and announces her as favored. Mary is not ecstatic or overjoyed or in awe. She's troubled and perplexed. The angel seeing this reassures her, don't be afraid. Your son will be great. He will be called son of the most high. Mary's confused and she questions, how can that be? The angel gives a not entirely comprehensible answer having to do with the spirit coming upon her and the power of the most high overshadowing her an explanation anyone might find suspicious or even unnerving. So the angel goes on to provide God's bona fides. Look, your cousin Elizabeth, the one who has been barren her whole long life, she's conceived a son with her husband. See, anything is possible with God, and I'm the messenger of that same God. Mary weighs the evidence and says yes. This Advent, in a time that feels apocalyptic, as we hear stories of Annunciation to those who are on the margins and the lower end of hierarchy, I invite us to pause and wonder. Is God still sending messengers to announce God's closeness and God's provision? What, messen what messengers have you heard? What is God announcing to us? What is God asking us to cooperate in? What new things are being born that we are being asked to say yes to? And if we hear an Annunciation, what questions will we ask back? As you move through these days of Advent with holiday cheer in one ear and the drumbeat of bad news in the other, I invite you to move through your days with eyes, ears, and hearts wide open for the messengers of God. Keep these women ancestors in your heart and listen with them. Let us pray. Mary, brave and frightened, guard our hearts from the cynicism which makes us brittle and prone to scorn, the cynicism which burns our hearts. Teach us to live like you, brave and frightened together, wholehearted, eyes wide open to God's presence. Amen.
Listen, listen. 